Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the gift of your resurrection and how it makes everything right. But it starts the process of redeeming all things, this process that we are in the midst of. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak, that your words would be here, heard, and your scripture would be proclaimed as we come to your word together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when I was about nine years old, we lived in central Florida, and one of the things that all of the boys in the neighborhood loved to do all summer was fishing. Now, we were really, really bad at fishing. We rarely ever caught anything, so if we did catch anything, it was the highlight of the week. And so one day, one summer day, we caught a turtle. It was a big red ear turtle, not a snapping turtle, fortunately. And so we were all gathering around and you know, looking at this turtle, all in amazement. And for whatever reason, I reached my hand across the front of the turtle's mouth and he jumped out and grabbed my wrist. And as a nine-year-old, I picked it up and this turtle probably weighed 100 pounds. No, it didn't, probably like five pounds, but I was swinging it around and it flew off and I made it. I lived from this traumatic injury, but I was left with a scar on my wrist. I have a little V-shaped scar here that every time I look at it, I laugh at the ridiculousness of this story. Now, we have some other scars in our life as well. About that same time, I got hit with a line drive baseball right in the shin. And I still carry the scar tissue from how that healed. And every time I bump it, no matter how soft or how hard, it sends a shooting pain up my leg. And I'm remembered of that stupid baseball, and why didn't I catch it? <laughs> I'm pretty sure all of us have stories about scars, and some of them we can show off, and some of them are more hidden. I was reminded of a hidden scar in my own life this week. Ten years ago yesterday, April 15, 2013, I posted three simple words on Facebook. We are safe. And the memory of these words and that day still haunt me. You see, we were living in the heart of Boston. And on the third Monday in April had become one of the highlights of the year for our family and our community. Now, if you don't know, the third Monday in April is the day when the whole city of Boston stops. Businesses shut down, streets close, and nearly half a million people pour into the city to watch more than 25,000 people run 26.2 miles into the heart of Boston's Back Bay neighborhood, into the heart of my neighborhood. About two blocks from where we are living, the Boston Marathon course makes a critical turn toward the finish line on Boylston Street. And every Marathon Monday for the previous four years, our family walked the few blocks down to the finish line to see the marathon runners cross after a grueling trek from the suburbs. But that year, Amy had convinced me to head out of town a few days early for the kids' spring break. And so when the bombs went off near the finish line and shook the windows of our house and tore apart our city, we were 100 miles away. We were safe, but we weren't unharmed. The emotional whiplash of that day of celebration and civic pride and joy and community quickly turned to mourning and fears of the unknown. 
And those mourning, anyone who's experienced those knows that that type of mourning and fear still stings years later. I imagine that's what the disciples were wrestling with in a similar way, a similar emotional whiplash in our passages from today. They were safe. They were locked in the room, but they were not unharmed from the events of that week. And for us, over the last couple of weeks, we've joined Jesus' disciples as we walk through what we could call a liturgical whiplash. On Palm Sunday, we proclaimed Jesus as Messiah and celebrated him coming into the city. And then we moved on Monday, Thursday to this intimate dinner in this expression of love of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And then we continued into the deep sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane, the pain, the confusion of Good Friday. My God, my God, why? And then on to the celebration of last week, the bells, the baptism, Easter, resurrection, whiplash indeed. And now we slip down the zenith of our liturgical year. We bask in the light of the resurrected son of righteousness. But the trauma of Good Friday is not erased. It remained for the disciples, and it remains for us as well. Easter has come, but it doesn't erase the memories, the pain, or the scars of what happened on that Good Friday. It doesn't erase it, but it does redeem it. And in the redeeming work of Easter and in our passage today from John 20, we see what it means to be an apprentice of the resurrected Jesus in a world where brokenness still exists. Painful memories are still formed and reformed in our minds, and those scars of the past still hurt. We see how to live into the resurrected life that Jesus opened for us when our scars are so deep and our wounds are still trying to heal. This is where the gospel, the good news of God, breaks into the lives of Jesus' disciples and into our lives. This is where Jesus steps in. He meets his disciples right where they're at. And he gives them the healing, just the healing that they needed. And so this is the good news from our passage for today that speaks into our broken stories, speaks into our scars and those wounds that are still trying to heal. God has broken into our scar-filled world and he is actively redeeming them. He's making all creation new and in his inbreaking, it culminated in the resurrection of Jesus, who through his death and resu resurrection has initiated the process of redemption of every scar through the power of his Holy Spirit. And in fact, our passage from today shows us that Jesus' own scars are redeeming in themselves. Jesus' victory over death shows us that those wounds and scars that we wish were made right so strongly, they show us that there is still something wrong in this world. And they, these longings that they be made right are right and true. Let's look at our passage from John 70 to explore this further. So as the Gospel of John unfolds, we see that the risen Jesus knew just what the disciples needed when he appeared to him. Mary is our first example just before the passage we read from today. 
When she stumbles upon the risen Jesus, looking for a dead Jesus to anoint the body, she stumbles upon the risen Jesus in the garden. She's confused. She doesn't know who he is or where her Savior had gone. She confused him for someone else until she heard her name. She heard him say her name, and she was breathless. She needed to hear her name just like we do. The other disciples needed to see and to touch him, to hear his voice. And Thomas, as we'll see, needed to touch those scars. But Mary needed to hear her name. Some of us just need to hear Jesus call our name again. That wherever we're at, that place of brokenness and sorrow, that Jesus is present and he's calling our name if we're listening. Look at what happens next in verse, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I'm going to say this every time we get a passage like this. When the Gospel of John in particular is talking about the Jews, we need to remember that Jesus, the disciples, all of his followers are all Jews. So that means that he's talking about a particular subset in a particular context. He's not talking about all Jews at all time. He's not talking about all the Jews of Jerusalem. He's talking about a particular group of Jewish leaders who were opposed to Jesus and his followers. And the disciples were afraid of this. And so they had locked themselves in the room. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, when we hear this phrase, peace be with you, we saw that a couple chapters earlier in John 10 and in John 16, where Jesus tells his disciples that I am giving you my peace. He says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad, and when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. A couple of things to note here. First is that Jesus is showing them his scars. His scars remain. The resurrected Jesus has scars. And that actually means something for us today. That those scars brought redemption. In our context of um, John, the scars were actually probably to show the disciples that this was the same person. This wasn't somebody else. But in our context today, it shows us that our scars will be redeemed. That those things that have broken us, that have wounded us, that Jesus is redeeming them. And he's bringing them into the light of his reality. Malcolm Geith has a number of great poems around uh, the resurrection and Easter that we recited uh, throughout Good Friday and uh, into Easter. But he's got one called This Breathless Earth, based on this passage. And he writes, We bolted every door, but even so we couldn't catch our breath for very fear. Fear of their knocking at the gate below. Fear that they'd find and kill us even here. Though Mary's tale had quickened all our hearts, each fleeting hope just deepens your despair. The panic grips again. The gasping starts, the drowning, the coming up for air. Then suddenly, a different atmosphere, a clarity of light, a strange release, and all unlooked for, Christ himself was there. Love in his eyes and on his lips are peace. 
So now we breathe again, sent forth, forgiven, to bring this breathless earth a breath of heaven. Geit uses this beautiful imagery of the breathlessness, that these breathless things, when you get hit and you have that pain, when you get hit with a baseball or bit by a turtle, or something else happens much more significantly, you lose your breath. And we, as followers of Jesus, are given our breath back again through his resurrection. And not only that, but we are asked and commissioned and given the gift of sharing that breath with others. Jesus breathed on him, verse 22 tells us. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus shows up and breath is restored. And that breath is meant to bring breath to others as well. John Chrysostom, the 5th century, uses a similar image. He writes, and when they were thirsting to see him and were greatly afraid, which was especially made their yearning greater, he showed up to them. The risen Jesus restores our breath and satisfies our thirst. Sometimes it's a thirst we don't even know we have. When he shows up, he shows up in a way that his disciples needed the most. He shows up and he shows them his wounds and he gives them his spirit. And he's still doing this today. He brings peace wherever he's at and his peace results in joy. Listen, when they saw him, they were glad, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And what is the effect of this peace and joy that brings, Jesus brings? It's that his disciples are able to be commissioned, to be sent out, and to be equipped by the Holy Spirit. The resurrected Jesus shows up, and he ministers to his people, and he equips them for everything they need through the power of the Holy Spirit. He reminds us that we are safe, even when it doesn't feel like it. But that doesn't stop here. Jesus shows up a second time. And this time he brings grace and he gives an exhortation. So in verses 24 and 25, we, right, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. Um, he doesn't demand anything more than any of the other disciples got. He wanted to see Jesus just like they did. Maybe he was disappointed that he missed out last time. Maybe he felt unworthy of Jesus' attention or time. Maybe some of us feel the same way when we see the spiritual experiences or the spiritual growth or the blessings or the success of other people. We feel like, how did I miss that? Why didn't I jump on that bandwagon earlier? Or maybe we just feel like, are we unworthy of Jesus' time and attention? But Thomas, didn't stop there. He also didn't trust his disciples, his fellow disciples' claims. But he stayed with them. You can imagine a situation where your friends are like, hey, we saw this dead guy rise from the dead. You should believe with us. And you're like, wait, what? Would you stick around with that group of people? Maybe, but maybe not. You'd be totally justified in leaving and saying, all right, I'm going to move on with my life. Uh, they're living in a delusional world. But what does Thomas do? He shows up with them the next week. He remains in community. 
he stayed with them even though he doubts. Thomas's example is instructive for us as well. That even in the midst of our own doubts about our faith and about what's going on in the life of the church, God's faithfulness, God's presence with me, or his uh, fighting for me, or his redemption of the brokenness that we live in, it's worth it to stay in community. It's worth it to stay together with Christ's body. I know in my own journey, as I process through my own faith, that being part of Christ's body, coming to church and proclaiming together things that I didn't quite embrace fully, but I knew my community around me did, carried me through a place that I couldn't carry myself. And so like Thomas, Jesus provides this sense of staying in community, even in the midst of our doubts. Sometimes we need to do the same when we doubt our faith, when we doubt the goodness of God or his redemptive work in our stories. Sometimes it's the community of faith that carries us through when we can't carry ourselves. And so if you're in one of those places now where you can't carry yourself, join the community. We can help. We're, we're not very good at it individually, but together we can work with God and call out his spirit on your behalf. And look at what the risen Jesus does in response to Thomas's doubt. He speaks directly to his point of hurt and questions. Jesus speaks to Thomas's wounding and Jesus's own scars bring his healing. Again, Malcolm Geith has a great poem on this called St. Thomas the Apostle. You guys get two poems today. This is something special. We do not know how we can know the way. Courageous master of the awkward question, you spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. O oh, doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. Because, you, because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours, help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. Our risen Jesus is gentle with Thomas's questions and with his request. And Jesus's scars bring healing to Thomas's own scars. Augustine writes this, he says, when he appeared, when Jesus appeared with all the members of his body and used their functions, he displayed the places of his scars and saw them as the result of his power not of some necessity. Now what Augustine is saying here, this deep theological truth, is that Jesus chose to have his scars exist on his risen body. Let me say that again because we don't really think about that very often. Jesus chose to have his scars exist on his risen body. God did not erase Jesus's wounding, the signs of the cross, the signs of the pain that he went through for our redemption, but he redeemed it, and he is doing the same thing for our scars. He redeemed them fully, and yet they remain, and through them he brought healing. 
the risen one carries within himself all of the experiences of his humanity. And it has been made right. And because of that, all of the experiences of our humanity can be made right as well. And they are being made right through the power of God's resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there, say, hey, look at my scars, be healed. He calls his disciples to respond. And he calls us to respond as well. He calls us to live beyond the pain of our scars and through his power. He calls us to trust him. And this is where the true blessed life lies. And this, we see this at the end of this chapter in John 20, 30 and 31. The good life, the blessed life, is the purpose of John's gospel. What John is doing, he tells us, is that he's explaining what it means to live a blessed life. And he tells us Jesus did many other signs. So we don't really need to know all the details, although I would love to have a book with all the other signs that Jesus did. But why John tells us this is that we can trust what he's saying. We can trust what we do have. But he also tells us that the truth about Jesus wasn't finally revealed until his resurrection, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is the son of God and he is life. The resurrected Jesus showed up right where the disciples woundedness was and he brought life into those scars. And this is how he shows up for us as well. And when we start to understand this, we start to see the fullness of Jesus' resurrection. Again, Augustine says to understand the resurrection is to understand the meaning of history from the end. That when we look at the resurrection, we can start pointing backward through all of history and forward through all of the future, and we can understand how and why and where it's going. Christ is risen, and that changes how we remember our own scars and our own wounding, and those things that are going on throughout our world. Christ's resurrection not only reminds us, but proclaims throughout all eternity that we are safe and that our wounds will be redeemed. Our passage from Peter is a great example of what it looks like to live into this resurrection reality. And so I'm gonna read uh, 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 through 9, but this is a kind of a mixed translation, a little of my own, a little of Eugene Peterson in the message, and a little of our passage. I'm a New Testament scholar, I can do that. Um, <laughs> so this is what Peter says. What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faithfulness. You are preserved for salvation that is ready to be revealed on the last day. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have had to put up with every kind of temptation and suffering in the meantime. When Jesus wraps all this up, it's your faithfulness that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. 
You never saw him, yet you loved him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him with the joy of a glorious, inexpressible, inexpressible kind. Because you kept on trusting, you'll get what you're looking forward to, the salvation of your souls. Thanks be to God.